Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. At many points during America's Gilded Age, it seemed the center of that glittering yet confined social world lay somewhere between Fifth and Madison Avenues in the palaces of New York City. But the Gilded Age East Coast elite, at least those in that tiny top tier like the famous Astors and Vanderbilts, were a nomadic group dividing time between mansions in the city, lengthy stays in Europe, and time in one of the great enclaves outside the city, such as the subject of our show today, that was, well, as at least one writer has called it, Fifth Avenue sur mer. That world to which the moneyed migrated for at least a few weeks every summer was, of course, Newport. The town with colonial origins on the Rhode Island coastline was where one found not palaces, at least as the elite ironically described them, but cottages. But who are we kidding? These grand homes with sweeping lawns stretching down to the sea were among some of the grandest homes late 19th century America had ever seen. And in most cases, they were an attempt for this sliver of society to forge an instant identity by copying the centuries-old cultures in Europe. Our show today takes a very special and truly unique look inside the world of the great houses and the lavish lifestyles that made up the Newport social scene in the last third of the 19th century and very early years of the 20th. So I invite you to put on your finest satin gown from Paris for perhaps a ball at the breakers or pristine whites for a game of croquet out on the lawn for our insider's look at Newport. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Many people, when they try to imagine the world of Newport society in the Gilded Age, think of the grand houses such as the Breakers, with its double-story Italian Renaissance-inspired Great Hall, or perhaps the great staircase lined with salmon-colored marble, or the salon gilded in 22-karat gold at Marble House. But to understand more deeply just how lives were lived, it's important to look at some of the decorative arts, or more simply, 
what people actually used and lived with as part of their lives. I am so lucky today to be joined by a guest who knows decorative objects and those of the Newport Society intimately, and who will share with us the stories of a few of those objects and what insight they can give us. In addition, we'll take a look at just how Newport came to be, as well as several of the mansions that can be visited today. And as always, as in any discussion of Gilded Age America, we'll spend a few minutes on some of the noteworthy personalities who populated the scene, all of which will give us a truly inside view past the glitter and the gold. Ulysses Dietz is the great-great-grandson of Ulysses S. Grant. His late mother, Julia, was the president's last living great-grandchild. He earned his degree in French at Yale and was trained to be a museum curator at the University of Delaware's Winterthur Program in American Material Culture, from which he received his master's. Ulysses was a decorative arts curator at the Newark Museum for 37 years before his recent retirement. Ulysses is the author of numerous books on a range of subjects from Victorian furniture, art pottery, studio ceramics, jewelry, and the White House. In addition, Ulysses has published memoir and a fiction series about which we could do an entirely new show. Most recently, just last year in fact, Ulysses curated an extraordinary exhibition for the Preservation Society of Newport County called Anything You Want, a closer look at treasures from Newport's Gilded Age, which forms the basis of our show today. Ulysses, there are so many subjects that we could discuss, and I am so deeply honored to have you here on the show today and to take a chance to really dip into your vast knowledge of decorative arts and to get an inside look at Newport in the Gilded Age. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, thank you, Carl. I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm honored and flattered, to be honest. So I think we're going to have fun. I think we are, too. So, Ulysses, let's just start at the beginning. And I think it may surprise some people to realize that Newport wasn't always the summer escape of choice, uh, at least for the early Gilded Age elite. In fact, in the 1870s, let's say, for example, New Yorkers, or at least some of them, escaped to Saratoga Springs. So can you share a little bit about how and why Saratoga actually seemed to be an attractive choice pre-Newport? Newport had been a resort for people from the South who were trying to get away from the heat since the 18th century. And like any seaside town, it developed a summer visitor crowd pretty early. Saratoga comes in a little bit later, and it, of course, doesn't have the water of the ocean, but it had different waters. It had these springs that were developed and discovered in the early 19th century, and it became an attraction at just the moment when Americans, for the very first time, started to go on vacation. Americans who could afford to would take trips, would go away to places that were healthy. And so, and the seaside wasn't necessarily healthy because people didn't swim that way. That would come later. But Saratoga had these springs and drinking the waters at Saratoga 
became a thing. And then it became a really big thing by the 1830s. So by the 1830s, Saratoga was drawing the New York crowd who had already been able to get up there by stagecoach. But once the trains came in 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 the early 1830s and that built up, it became a steady stream north from New York City to Saratoga because of the, the waters. And because people could wander around in fresh air and see the beautiful greenery and drink the water, which I don't know anybody has written about what it was actually like to drink that water, but spas were a big deal. And then the luxuries of a resort town began to crop up. Remember, this is all being invented at the time, so hotels and restaurants. And then by the middle of the 19th century, especially as the Civil War loomed, horse racing. And horse racing became the huge draw right up until the present day for Saratoga. So it was very, very different from Newport. And I got to say, U.S. Grant loved Saratoga because he loved horse racing. And with the horse racing, what a perfect way to start to spend some of that new Gilded Age wealth, right? To gamble on the horses. Absolutely. Now, how did Newport sort of take over from Saratoga Springs? Because I think of the opening of Edith Wharton's The Buccaneers set roughly in the 1870s, and that's all set in Saratoga. But then we add on maybe five or 10 years, and it seems that so much of that crowd has now migrated to Newport. What accounted for that? How did they end up going to Newport? Well, I guess I shouldn't say it's a mystery, but it, it's a bit of a puzzle. And I think it's it's like anything social is that it, it really takes a few people to shift people's attention from one thing to another. And I don't really know because interestingly in Newport, they don't really spend a lot of time talking about it. There was one thing that was critical, however, was access. And there was no, there has never been a good train to Newport. Even today, there's no easy way to get there on train. You have to go to Providence or you have to get off in Kingston. Uh, So that was not gonna work. Whereas Saratoga, once they had trains, they went right there. But there was water. There was the ocean, and New York was a port, and Newport was a port. And once the New Bedford steamship lines came into being, that became the train that made it easy for New Yorkers to get up to Newport. And I suspect in there was a habit because there were early in Newport's history as a summer resort. There were a few families who were both New Englanders and New Yorkers. See, Newport grew up as as a New England resort first. In the first 40 years, it was primarily New Englanders because the access, you could get down from Boston, but getting up from New York was a different story. But there were sort of expats from New England, like William Wetmore, who created his starting with the China trade, but created a great business empire in New York City and then retired to Newport. And he's actually the one who built one of the first great houses, which was Chateau-sur-Mer, the the small, the quote, quote, small version of it that South Bradford built for him in 1852. And then his son, George Peabody Wetmore, Peabody being a good New England name, reiterates that and then establishes Chateau-sur-Mer as his house. But he draws, I, I suspect he draws the attention of some society people from New York City. And that begins the trend. And certainly the the Wetmores were taking the boat. Uh, They never tried to get to Newport on a train. And they never looked at Saratoga. Unless maybe they, I mean, I should never say that. They might have gone horse racing. Horse racing was a big deal. But Newport became their summer home, their year-round home. And I suspect they were sort of the thin edge of the wedge that drew people's attention to Newport first. 
So if we dropped ourselves into Newport, say in the 1850s, 1860s, and then dropped ourselves again into Newport, say the 1880s and 1890s, what would be different? Oh, scale. <laughs> and and that's really, for, for me, the fascination, my obsession with 19th century houses really is a shift. And the shift comes, is, is really before and after the Civil War. Uh, and, and it's not because of the war itself, but because the shift in the economic center. The vast majority of the money in the United States before the war was in the South. After the war, it was in the North, and that happened because of the war, literally physically because of the war, as industry grew, railroads grew, the telegraph grew. All of these things expanded first and fastest in the North, so you have all that money shifting. And then, as you said, speaking of the uh, racetracks, you have all that money, and what people do when they have money is spend it. In spite of people over generations who had been saying, don't do that, don't go there, don't build big houses, don't lavish money around, that's not who we are. Well, that is who we are and who we were, and that's and that all shifts right, af right after the war in the 1860s, just when U.S. Grant suddenly becomes the most famous person in the United States. And at the same time, though, a lot of these big fortunes are just emerging. So this is the time when Cornelius Vanderbilt, who probably himself never steps foot or never wanted to step foot in Newport. I don't know where he went, actually, but he's making all that money. And he is at the first biggest, richest New Yorker at the time. And what happens, though, is you've got an established crowd of people who are building substantial villas. And I would call them villas, mid-19th century houses that are big and stylish, most likely wooden, some of them built out of brick and stone, but they're large. And I, see, are they mansions yet? I don't know. Maybe in the minds of the people who live in them, they are. But that's where they get away with calling them cottages. You build a big wooden house on a bluff overlooking the ocean in Newport, and you can call it a cottage. So that terminology sticks long after the house type disappears. And, and really, by uh, there, there's a new book out by a man named Michael Catherines on these early villas, The pre, literally it says on the title, pre-Vanderbilt villas. And by 1870, there were 300 big houses in Newport and along Bellevue Avenue. So that's a lot of real estate. And most of those people are New Englanders, but there are a few people like the Wetmores who are New Yorkers. And then the shift... And I'm not really, you know, maybe this is attitudes toward oceans, but there are lots of seaside resorts that begin to rise up in the 1860s and 70s. And again, not to get off of Newport, but U.S. Grant buys a summer house in Long Branch, New Jersey in 1867, long before he's president, because going to the shore becomes a thing. And so Newport is building up in that exact same way with the New England crowd. But I think a, a critical shift, the Wetmores are there, but a critical shift is, I think, and again, this could be misproven, but is that when Mrs. Astor, the perpetually alone Caroline Astor, decides to buy a house in Newport, and she buys an old house and then has it renovated. She buys a house from the 1850s, from that pre-Civil War era, and has it lavishly expanded and renovated, ultimately using Richard Morris Hunt, who I guess we'll talk about more. And I think once she moves... I am again, I can't prove this. Nobody wrote it down, but I'm sure that's why Alva Vanderbilt 
decides she wants to buy a house in Newport. And then when she goes to Newport, her sister-in-law goes to Newport. And then the other Vanderbilts, because there are a bunch of them, and there are a lot of Vanderbilt houses scattered around at different times. Well, these ladies were nothing if not competitive, right? Exactly. Right? So let's talk a little bit about Chateau-sur-Mer and the Wetmores that you mentioned earlier. One can visit Chateau-sur-Mer today. And that house built, am I correct, in the 1850s? Mm looks different than certainly Marble House or The Breakers. Can you describe what that particular style for that particular cottage would have been and would have looked like? Well, it was always... (laughs) I'm laughing because it doesn't look that way to us, but it was always meant to look French. The, The original house which was massive and gray granite, so a little forbidding, but it had curved mansard roofs and a sort of vaguely Italianate massing, but the curved roofs tagged it as French. And it was called Chateau-sur-Mer, which was the most pretentious thing about it. And and the fact that the Wetmores call it that early is really, it, it must have made people snicker that they would give their house such a pretentious name. And you think of this big stone house sitting in a big piece of acreage with no trees on it that you could see the water all around. It was quite an amazing setting. And it really sort of sets the tone. But when George Wetmore inherits the house from his father, he wants it bigger and better because that's really the the tag of the Gilded Age is bigger and better, more opulent, more impressive. And and George Wetmore was a was a man of the Gilded Age, whereas his father was not. So he brings in a fairly new architect by the ma- name of Richard Morris Hunt, who has already built buildings in Newport. The old Griswold House, which is now the Newport Art Museum, is a fantastic 1860s wooden house that survives in remarkable condition. Uh, and that's already existing. So Hunt is already established in Newport, has a house, a wooden house in Newport, uh, where the Viking Hotel is now. And he somehow gets the attention of George Wetmore, who says, oh, come in and let's do some improvements. And I think there are actually three waves of expansions and improvements out and up and elaborations inside. So, and that sort of really puts Hunt on the map because the Wetmores are old Newport, the Vanderbilts are new Newport, Mrs. Astor is old New York, new Newport, and they all go for Richard Hunt. He's not the only architect, but this really makes his career. And we're certainly going to talk about him a little bit more when we get to Alva Vanderbilt. But speaking of the Vanderbilts, so the Vanderbilts come to town. Cornelius Vanderbilt II actually has the breakers, but The Grand Mansion, the Breakers that we see today, was actually not the first house that was there. Can you talk a little bit about that and put that in context for us? Well, no, and it it was called the Breakers, so it was the second house of that name. But the the original Breakers was built in the 1870s by a Boston firm called Peabody and Stearns for the Lorillards, who were the great tobacco family and who have have New York connections. That's another thing I had thought about. Of course, the Lorillards were here, but they sell their house in the late 70s, early 80s to Cornelius Vanderbilt. And what I'm not sure is whether Alva had already there, – there's this interesting tension between the Cornelius Vanderbilt second household and the William K. Vanderbilt household because they're siblings. They're the two most powerful of the brothers, uh, and they both have very strong wives who have social ambitions. And, and uh, the Vanderbilts, Cornelius 
who I refer to as CV2 because there are so many Corneliuses, but he and Alice buy the breakers for a huge amount of money from the Lorillards, 400-something thousand dollars, which is the largest real estate deal in the history of Newport. And then they settle into the house. And meanwhile, Alva is in Newport, is beginning to study how she's going to plan her house, which she buys the lot next to Mrs. Astor, next to Beechwood. And so that's going on. But meanwhile, the Vanderbilts are hanging out at the breakers. And then one winter, there's an explosion in the furnace and the whole thing burns down. I believe the family is actually there for Thanksgiving. And so they all, they get out fine, but this massive, valuable piece of property just burns to the ground. And so that that in itself is sending ripples through the society columns. But by the point, by the time it burns down, Alva has already finished Marble House. So that's the model. And what it, what's interesting is the Breakers is the biggest, but Marble House is the first of its kind. And it sends shockwaves through Newport society, certainly when the, the secret security walls are taken down and this great glittering white marble house is sitting there. But then it is eclipsed a few years later, at least in size, by the Breakers, which remains to this day the biggest house ever built in Newport. And with that, we are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue the story. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Now... We're going to talk about architects for a couple of minutes, and I want to go back to Richard Morris Hunt that you you mentioned a couple of times earlier. It's certainly been said that he was the architect that, quote, gave the Gilded Age its look, and that's certainly true. Uh, he was responsible for Marble House, as you, as you mentioned. He was responsible for the Breakers. Also, Alva Vanderbilt really liked him. He created her Petit Chateau, right, on, mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue. What was it about Richard Morris Hunt that was special, and why was he the architect of choice at this time for these houses? Richard Morris Hunt is there. He's designing modern houses in the 1860s and into the 70s. He does this expansion work for Chateau-sur-Mer for the Wetmores, which is very 
is I love that house, Chateau sur Mer. It's one of my favorite houses. And what he does there is so easy to track and so fascinating and changes the house so completely, but it's not what he does for the Vanderbilts. So what I think has happened is he's in New York City also. He has one thing that no other architect in the country can boast is that he attended the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. So he is a European-trained architect. And Alva's going to like that because Alva and her family live in France a lot in the 1860s and early 1870s. So Alva becomes obsessed with everything old and French. But when she meets him, he obviously appeals to her because he knows France too. He is really an expert. He advises her not just on architecture, but on collecting. And there's more to be said about that. But so he is out there hunting up collectors to find things to sell to American clients, decorators who will decorate the houses he wants to design in the United States. So he's all over it. And he does something very important that I'm sure this is this is the thing that hooks him, not in Newport, but with the Vanderbilts, which is in 1878, when the Lorillards have just built the Old Breakers, which is a very picturesque shingle-style house, he and Alva cook up what you referred to as the Petit Chateau, but I've seen the prototype of it, which is a medieval townhouse in the city of Bourges, which is where the word bourgeois comes from. And it was a commoner with no blood who became very, very rich in the Middle Ages and had this house. And that house became the symbol of the rising bourgeoisie in 19th century France. And I'm sure Alva saw it, and I know Hunt saw it, and I'm sure he said, hey, let's give you one of those on Fifth Avenue. And it was actually, because it wasn't the first house of its kind in the world, but it was the first house of its kind that at 665th Avenue, the first house of its kind in the United States. And if you look at pictures of it, it's surrounded by brownstone townhouses and this white confection right out, you know, like a Disneyland castle is must have just blown people's mind. And then Alva throws that incredible party there to which Mrs. Astor is forced to come. But it's a party that U.S. Grant went to, actually, because he was a friend of Alva's father-in-law. And so it becomes the focus of this new, I think it really tips the world into the new Gilded Age. Now, there was another architect uh, that was in the Newport mix that may be less familiar to some listeners, but I find interesting, and that's Ogden Codman Jr. And I was just recently at the Breakers, and the second floor rooms of the Breakers were actually designed by Codman, not by Hunt. Can you talk a little bit about who he was and what his contributions were in the Newport world? He's a fascinating character because he is – he's an architect, but he's also a decorator. So he's a decorator who knows more than the average decorator. He knows – I mean, there aren't a lot of decorators actually in the late 19th century. There are a few. But there's like Louis Tiffany who is not trained as an architect. So he's, a, he's an aesthetic person, whereas Codman is an architect and a historian. I mean, like Richard Morris Hunt, he knows his French stuff. So he becomes and, – and I was looking through books and realizing is that Codman early on didn't build much in Newport. And the Breakers is really the biggest thing he's done because the amount of space he did in the Breakers, really the second and third floors, is that space alone is bigger than most of the houses in Newport. And the, the remarkable thing is all the drawings for that survive. 
hand-drawn color drawing so you know that all of this custom work, both for the boys' rooms on the third floor and the family rooms and guest rooms on the second floor, those drawings survive. And we know that he designed the furniture because unlike everything else, or I should say unlike Marble House, which Alva took as much time as she needed, the breakers had to be built fast. It's built in less than two years from burn down to opening party, and they have to be quick. They can't just have everything made in France and shipped over. So Codman not only designs everything and designs the rooms and the textiles and all of that, but he goes to local furniture makers in Boston, Davenport and Company, to have all of that material made. So it's it's a first for him, but it's also a first out of expedience. I'm sure Alice Vanderbilt would have loved to have had all of her furniture from Allard in Paris, but there was not time. There certainly was plenty of money, so that wasn't an issue. It was about speed. But the, the fact that Codman gets it. Maybe he gets the job for the upstairs because he's local too. He's a Boston. He's a Boston kid. His family has a beautiful old house in Lincoln, uh, and he's there so he can be consulted and and give advice and do the drawings immediately rather than waiting for things to go back and forth across the ocean. He's old money New England, and he's highly educated. He has beautiful taste, and as that kind of taste begins to trickle in. And I say that because I it's my feeling that The Breakers is the first appearance of that aesthetic in an American house. And it completely the cha- changes the way rich people see their interiors. So he becomes important sort of by accident. And yet, because he doesn't do everything all across the country for the rest of his life, but he sets the tone that everybody else follows. Now, Ulysses, Newport was full of of course, very colorful and some controversial characters that made up that Gilded Age elite. We've talked about a few of them. One of them, of course, was Alva Vanderbilt, which you've mentioned, the wife of Willie Kay and the mother of Consuelo. She almost single-handedly, along with Hunt, I think, built the palace, her palace, the Marble House. It seems that she actually had a bit of a talent for architecture. Do you think that's true? Well, she was very smart. And, you know, Alva is a complicated person. And to me, she has become sort of emblematic of the Gilded Age. She's become a stereotype, but I think she's emblematic of a reality among the wives, a lot of Gilded Age wives, even the sort of moderately rich, but certainly among the very rich who had two battles to fight. They had to fight their way into society because society as such was something that existed but passively. Mrs. Astor makes it into a battlefield. She really does that by herself for her own reasons, and that's where society comes from. It's not something that had to exist because we're not an aristocracy. Society exists already there. But Alva, she's the quarter. Why should I use sports metaphors? She's the quarterback in that football game, and she, more than any other Vanderbilt wife, brings the Vanderbilts into social prominence. It's not Alice who is not a social fighter. She's much more reserved. She's more old school. Alva, like every rich man's wife, was expected to behave herself in a certain way and limit herself to appropriate 19th century women's sphere things. So 
this is something that haunts me because I can think of this all across the country and a lot of people, a lot of women, and you notice I talk a lot about the women, not about the men. The men had their own ambitions, but they were for business and men's society. The women were raised in America to be the homemakers. And whether it was a three-room cottage on the frontier or the breakers, the housewife was the one who made it. And that's that's a real thing about 19th century American culture. And Alva took that seriously. But I think what you have in the Gilded Age and you have in America in general in the 19th century is very smart women who are given nothing to do but be homemakers. I mean, June Cleaver is the one from my own generation who was clearly uh, a very smart woman but did what she did. We always joke about her in a dress and pearls vacuuming. But Alva wasn't going to do that. And I think the house becomes a symbol of her expressing herself as the woman she wanted to be in the world. I mean, that sounds very touchy-feely. But, and so she's, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who said, oh, she was competing with Alice. I don't think she was competing with Alice. I think she was egging Alice on saying, okay, you've got more money. You do a bigger house. Because I don't know how much Alice felt about this because she doesn't write about it. But Alva was a passionate amateur architect. She studied architecture. She knew French culture. She got along with Hunt. And I think they worked together as a team. And what those of us who think a lot about the Breakers and Marble House together realize is that Marble House is a house where the client cared so much that she was an interference, whereas the Breakers is purely the architect's house. She, Al, Alice and Cornelius nodded and approved and signed the papers, but they let the architect do exactly what he wanted. It's his purest house, whereas Marble House has as much Alva in it as it does Richard Morris Hunt. And I think the, and I think she was his greatest client, although not his largest client. And, and I think it's a unique relationship that you don't see a lot in the Gilded Age. And with that, we are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to continue the story. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Now, Ulysses, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, you have recently curated really an extraordinary exhibition in Newport called Anything You Want, A Closer Look at Treasures from Newport's Gilded Age. Let's just start at the beginning of that. What was your goal in curating that exhibition? What did you want to achieve? I'm laughing because I wish I could say it was something more noble. But when it was proposed to me that we do an exhibition, all the the mandate from the Preservation Society was that I go through the houses in Newport and I quote pick the best stuff. But uh, and I thought, oh my God, I get to do this! I get to go through and look at all these houses and think about what's in them. But what has always fascinated me as a curator, because I I managed a historic house, a Gilded Age house at the Newark Museum. And so I'd thought about this a lot in my career because a lot of museums have trouble with the Gilded Age because it isn't always about the purest and the best and the finest. It's about the richest and the fanciest and the most showy. Uh, And that, that makes a lot of museums very uncomfortable, but it never made me uncomfortable. So I thought, I get to go through these houses and pick the stuff that sparks joy. And I am an eclectic person, and I realized that, but how am I going to make this make sense? There's a portrait of Alva's youngest son, who is known as Mike, this incredible portrait of a three-year-old boy holding kittens. And then there's a beautiful table from the library at the Breakers that I'm sure nobody in 100 years has ever noticed, but a beautiful handmade table. And then there are oddball, exotic things at Kingscote, paintings of the harbor at Canton that exist in almost no other place in the United States. In every house, there was some fascinating, wonderful, crazy thing. So I went through and picked out the hundred objects I liked best. And then I thought, okay, so what do I do with all this? Because I'm not just going to say, oh, this is the best in Newport, because sometimes they weren't necessarily the best. They were the things that intrigued me. But I realized that each of these objects interested me because it represented something desired. And I thought, let's talk about why was this thing desirable? Why would somebody want this? Why is this in this house? Uh, and there's I, not every object in the exhibition was actually original to one of the Newport properties, but there were just some great objects that spoke of Gilded Age collecting and actually echoed through time. So that was the sort of basis of it. And it, it turned out really, it was a hugely fun exhibition to do. Well, you and I had lunch a few weeks ago. And after our lunch, I said, Gosh, Ulysses, could you go home and send me a little list of just a few of the objects that were your favorites, that meant something um, special, you think, in the story of Newport? And we'll talk about them in the show. And you so 
wonderfully did. And so we have a few to talk about. And my listeners, I will be posting images of these on my Instagram account for The Gilded Gentleman, which is at Carl the Gilded Gentleman. But let's start with one, which is a dressing table from The Breakers. This was, uh, you had mentioned Ogden Codman when we were talking about his design. This was something that he had designed. Can you talk a little bit about this table, what it looks like, where it came from, and why it was important to you? Well, getting up onto the third and fourth floors of the breakers, which had not been public, are not public yet, I was so fascinated to go through the rooms and to see that so much of the original wall treatments are all in place from 1895. The, they had never been changed. And in one of the dressing rooms, which was sort of, it was hard, it was a beautiful paneled space outside of a tiled and marble bathroom with no wall separating them. They were just two parts of the same space. But there was this lovely French Louis XV marble-topped walnut chest of drawers with very elaborate mirror above it. And they were hanging there in the place that Ogden Codman chose to put them and for which they were made and from which they had never been moved since the breakers opened. And these were done for teenage boys. Well, I guess maybe they were older, but they I mean they grew up, the ones who sort of were teenagers when the house opened. And then on the other side of that same floor uh, and on the the third floor and the fourth floor were the 30 servants' rooms for all the servants. And all of those survive with most of their original furniture in them, too. And in one of those, I found a labeled washstand or a, a wash table because there were bathrooms for the servants, but not for every single one. So they all had wash stands in their rooms. And this is an original washstand in untouched condition labeled by a factory in Michigan. And I thought these came into the house at the same time. And they were both ordered for people in the household who did not have the power to choose what was in their bedrooms. Mrs. Vanderbilt and Ogden Codman and, and Hunt chose what was going into the third floor bedrooms. The children didn't really have much say in it. Consuelo didn't have any say at Marble House either. And the servants certainly didn't have any say. And all of their furniture is inexpensive, nicely made, middle-class stuff ordered en masse from this, uh, from this factory in Michigan. And I thought, this is a fascinating study in maybe you can't always have anything you want if somebody else is in charge of what you get. So, and they look, they've never been shown, they've never been shown together. And I thought they, they were doing something I wanted to do in this exhibition was to remind people that there were 10 Vanderbilts in the house and 30 servants. And because it's a, it's a world where a lot of unseen people are important. All the beautiful things made in Paris were made by people we don't know. And, you know, all the decorating, all of the maintenance, all the gardening. And it was a way to bring those unseen people physically into the room. And I, they, look, they looked beautiful together, too. The next two items I'd like to talk about are related to Mrs. Astor, Caroline Astor. And one in particular is deeply fascinating to me and clearly to you, too. One is her dressing table, which we'll talk about, but also is a portrait of her, an oil painting of her that I can only imagine very few have ever, ever seen. So can you talk about these two items? Because these illuminate 
the life of Caroline Astor in a way that we just don't normally see. Well, and and we placed the the portrait of Mrs. Astor and the dressing table, which are 40 years apart. One is at the beginning of her career as Mrs. Astor, as a young bride, and one of them as an old lady and a widow and a grandmother. The the dressing table is actually at Chateau-sur-Mer because descendants of Mrs. Astor gave it to the Preservation Society and it just got put in Chateau-sur-Mer. It's a, a black and gold French-style dressing table made in New York in 1860 by Léon Marcotte, who was the most fashionable furnisher. There really weren't decorators in the 1860s. It's part of a whole bedroom set that was given by descendants to Newport, to the Preservation Society, uh, and it had come from her famous house on Fifth Avenue, the downtown house with the ballroom that held the 400. So it represents her as a young bride with the most modern, fashionable furniture she could have, even though this was the sort of thing that nobody would have seen except her maid. And it was a really symbol of her sort of nascent power as a young socialite long before the Vanderbilts complicated the story later on in the Gilded Age. And it's actually, it's just on the, on the it's 1860s, so it's during the Civil War. So the Gilded Age hasn't really kicked in yet, but it's the beginning. And the portrait by a, a famous European and he's only now getting paid attention to because museums have ignored him, but his pictures are in a lot of museums, is a man named muller Yuri, And it's a portrait of her. I, I was. It was stuck down a corridor at Rosecliff, and we were poking around and talking. Oh, we were looking at pedestals to put furniture on in the exhibition. And I look, and there's this portrait of an, sort of a sad-eyed old lady with a low-cut gown and curled gray hair and pearls. And I looked at the label, and it's, it's Caroline asked her, and I said, what? Where'd this come from? And it, it actually had ended up in Wyoming at a university and was given to Newport by this university, who obviously had no purpose to own it. And I said, this is fascinating because this is not the image of Caroline Astor we have. This is It was painted a few years before she died in the early 20th century, and it shows a woman who has seen a lot of life. And she's there in all of her I can have anything I want, blue silk evening gown and her pearls, which would have been worth a huge amount. But she has these sort of big blue, slightly sad eyes of somebody who has lived a long life, who has seen people come and go and has, I don't know, had a lot of thoughts about her life. And she uh, will never know what is behind this painting, but clearly it wasn't something the family kept. And I thought it was a great way to show a sort of span of time from the beginning to the end of the Gilded Age. And there's another small painting I would love to talk about. And this was a gift from Willie K. Vanderbilt to his daughter, Consuelo. Can you talk about this? There are so many things to talk about here. It was done by Baldini. Can you talk a little bit about who Baldini well, was? And and so... In Marble House, at least last time I looked, they keep it on Alva's desk in her little study on the landing of the Great Staircase, which is one of the loveliest little rooms I've ever seen. And it's literally, it's barely bigger than a postcard. It's like five by seven. And it's just a young woman sitting in a park. It's a little more impressionistic than Giovanni Boldini's great portraits were. And they were big and splashy and really all about style. But this is a little tiny intimate picture of a young woman that a father gives to his daughter. And Alva and Willie Kay 
did not make a happy marriage, but they both loved their children. And I love this very personal gift that stayed in the family and ended up back in Marble House, which was not a place of happiness for Consuelo until later on when she and her mother do these great women's votes parties at Marble House. So, But that painting, which we referred to throughout the process as the teeny Boldini, because you can never see it. You, you really need to get right up close to it. It's such a personal piece of art. The last object that we are going to have time to talk about today is is a really curious one because it appears to be a child's chair owned by Mrs. Harry Lair. Now, can you talk, first of all, about who she was and tell us about this chair? The one great Boldini in Newport's collection is this great portrait of Elizabeth Drexel Lair. Spectacular. It seems larger than life-size. But she was a very flamboyant figure, as was her husband in Newport society. But this, since I was told very explicitly I could not have the big Boldini in the exhibition because it's too big to move. But tucked away in the elms is this beautiful little French bergère that looks like it was made for a child. And it came out of Allard's studio in Paris and was made for Mrs. Lehrer for her beloved little dog, Hippodale, who is a papillon. So a little a little big-eared, long-haired little black dog. And the Boldini portrait is she's holding papillon as a puppy. And then there is a, an individual portrait done of papillon after he died. And in the Elms, it hangs above the chair he used. And I love the idea of these this, this image of this very elaborate interior with this little dog following his mistress around and then hopping up into his chair. The Gilded Age, where even animals and pets had their own furniture, right, right. Ulysses? <laughs> Still do today. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, Ulysses, I wish we could just go on and on and on and talk about so many other subjects and different angles of things. You have brought so much insight into not only Newport and the world of Newport, but also the Gilded Age in general. I am so grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you for having me on the show. Will you come back? Absolutely. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about other shows that we can develop together. I would, I would so love to have you back here. Thank you, Ulysses, so, so much. And my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps with the cost of research and production to continue to be able to do the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection. 
infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. 